Hello, and welcome to the Talking M&A podcast. Today's podcast is in partnership with Baker McKenzie, and I'm your host, Rob Hartley. The topic of discussion in this podcast will be carve-outs. The pandemic stalled deal-making across many industries, but as the global economy gets to grips with COVID-19, buyers and sellers are once again assessing their strategic options, and for many, carve-outs are front of mind. Joining me today are two very experienced lawyers from Baker McKenzie. Stephen Canner is the co-chair of the transactional group for the firm's New York and Miami offices. He also serves on Baker McKenzie's private equity steering committee for North America and is a member of its corporate and securities practice group in New York. He has worked on carve-out deals both within the United States and abroad throughout his career. Darcy Down is a partner in Baker McKenzie's Los Angeles office. Darcy is an expert on carve-outs and advises clients on a wide range of transactional matters, including domestic and cross-border M&A and complex multi-jurisdictional corporate reorganisations. Welcome to you both. Great to have you here. Thanks, Rob. Great to be here. Thank you, Rob. Happy to be here. Darcy, let me start with you. Carve-outs can often be a misunderstood concept, so could you give us a kind of 101? I mean, what is a carve-out and what types of carve-out do we typically see? And why would a company implement one? Thanks, Rob. Yep. Happy to start with the basics. A carve-out transaction is any transaction that refers to a separation of a business line or a division or other portion of a larger business. And there's different types of carve-out transactions, but the key component of a carve-out is this interdependence between the business that's being separated or carved out and the other retained businesses of the parent company. And and that's what makes a carve-out unique. Uh, And when we think about carve-out transactions, we typically think of a sale or a spin-off transaction. Uh, Carve out and sale, that's when you're going to carve out or separate a portion of a larger business, and then you sell that separated business to a third party. That third party should ultimately, after some transition period, be able to operate that targeted business uh, as a standalone business going forward. Um, In a spin-off transaction, again, you're carving out or you're separating a portion of a larger business, but instead of selling the separated business to a third party, the parent company creates a new independent company. We typically call that SpinCo. It then distributes the shares of SpinCo to the existing shareholders of parents. So in a nutshell, both transactions are carve-out transactions, but in a spin-off transaction, shareholders continue to have an interest in both companies, at least for some period of time, Uh, whereas in the carve-out and sale scenario, shareholders sell their interest in the separated business to a third party. Carve-outs are, of course, also very popular antitrust remedies, or at least have been to date. Uh, So we see regulators requiring promises or undertakings to divest product lines or business units in order to get the necessary competition approvals. And then last, I'd say, and um, Steve, I'm sure you'll have something to say on this. Um, On the buy side, private equity buyers are using carve-out transactions as turnaround opportunities. And we have seen PE very active in this space in the last year. That's right, Darcy. I agree with all of the above. And and one of the themes, though, um, driving driving carve-outs is to unleash value by by corporates. So if they have a a mixed portfolio or a business that's considered ancillary to what's defined as core for market purposes, they very well may divest of the non-core asset and help shareholders realize value. A natural fit for that carve-out as a buyer are private equity or asset managers. It's generally speaking a difficult deal to do, especially when it's a global business that is being carved out. Also, corporate sellers don't have to open up all of their secret sauce or private 
assets to a competitor if they're dealing with private equity in most cases. Stephen, can I ask you from a legal standpoint, how does a company know when it's ready to push ahead with a carve-out? The key to the transactions that Darcy described is preparation, preparation, and preparation. Um, a, a, a driver, for, for example, and I'm going to go back to one more driver for um, a carve-out transaction, is for public companies, even the largest, or sometimes um, facing either an activist investor or shareholders who are selling out of their stock. So the carve-out's often a reaction to that. Nonetheless, it takes a lot of time. The key is to quarantine or identify um, the requisite assets and quarantine them from the rest of the business. As Darcy stated earlier, there's shared assets frequently within an organization, whether or not it's just the finance or the backbone of the organization, legal and and non-core matters to operations, but sometimes it's deeper than that. Sometimes it's an IP portfolio of patents or, or um, others that are shared by the enterprises. And one has to go through a painstaking analysis as to what is properly owned by the carved out business and what should be owned by the legacy or core business, identifying which people and what their contractual arrangements are and whether or not moving those people from one business to another has any implications for the ongoing operations of both the core business as well as the business to be carved out. Real estate also key from a legal perspective. How could that business operate? Is there a restriction in a lease for how a business operates? All of those items that I just described require preparation and thinking through because the last thing a buyer wants is to end up with an incomplete plate of assets to operate a business. And the last thing the core business wants is to divest of something that's necessary for them to operate. Tying it into the private equity model as a potential buyer, private equity traditionally buys an asset in order to improve it during um, a period of operations. And then ultimately the goal would be to divest of that asset at a higher price. If the asset acquired isn't complete or otherwise has hair on it, hair being things like sharing assets with others or cross licenses or still being dependent upon transition services after the deal um, closed for a prolonged period, those types of things could dampen interest in the asset by future buyers. And that is um, certainly not what um, an asset manager buyer would be attracted by. That being said, they're not afraid to work hard and they have a lot of gray matter to pay attention to these types of issues. But the key, going back to what I said initially, is preparation, preparation, and preparation in that everything must be identified and hopefully as airtight as possible. Absolutely. And, and Steve, you mentioned transition services, but I can't stress that enough. You know, that, that is a big part of the, the preparation. That's what gets the buyer comfortable, um, that they're going to be able to operate this business um, as a standalone going forward. So you really, as a seller, 
you know, before you're going out to buyers, you do want to have a solid view on whether and how that business can be run separately um, and whether there are going to need to be any sort of ongoing commercial arrangements. What do those look like? What are you willing to do um, it, it, you know, in the long term? Uh, and this, of course, requires a lot of collaboration between all of the different functional teams. So it's something that um, needs to start early. It's also important to remember that companies can be very challenged in the early stages of a project, um, because e even up through signing, because very few individuals in the beginning are under the tent. And so you know, typically we'll see carve-out diligence starting with headquarters um, until the deal is signed or announced. But it, a carve-out requires very detailed information, uh, but a lot of that information is being held outside of headquarters with lo the local managers. Um, and, you know, everybody knows there can be challenges, you know, with record keeping or information flow within headquarters, particularly for serial acquirers. Um, but point is, no matter what, there'll always be surprises once signing is complete and the carve-out implementation work begins. But preparation and doing your diligence um, from the start, even if limited, is, is very important prior to going to market. And re related to that is thinking through um, foreign investment concerns, antitrust concerns, any other regulatory concerns, to have a foundation whereby the core business knows the risk profile that they're entering into when the spinoff occurs. For example, on the antitrust planning, is it feasible to sell the business to a competitor? How many competitors are there in the space that would be interested? Would there be too much overlap in any given jurisdiction? All those things go to the marketability of the company to be spun off. And being informed as to those potential pitfalls and planning around them, again, goes back into the category of preparation. Okay, so this sounds obviously uh, like a very complex uh, style of transaction if you're only doing it on a domestic level. Um, but let's maybe widen it out now. And um, Darcy, could you talk us through what do you have to think about if there's a cross-border element to a carve-out? Absolutely. So this is a topic I could spend a full day discussing, but I'll try to keep it short. Um, I've worked on carve-out transactions that involve anywhere from you know, five to 100 jurisdictions um, or carve-outs that have taken anywhere from six months to two years to complete. And so my first advice to anyone uh, is to think about effective organization. It's important in all carve-out transactions, but in particular cross-border transactions, because when you're doing a 50-country deal, you're working with a massive web of people and communications and issues. Um, and those issues need to be escalated and addressed, and you need to be able to manage these interdependencies and timing considerations across all jurisdictions. And of course, across all of the functional areas and advisors that are weighing in in those jurisdictions. So full organizational engagement and proper project management is absolutely critical. I'd say transaction structuring and entity formations, particularly in cross-border transactions, you know, we're seeing a multitude of sophisticated and complex structuring alternatives, and they're being driven by tax and sometimes legal and operational considerations. So the need to look at your acquisition infrastructure and determine the form of the transaction, uh, you know, asset share, you know, transition services in each jurisdiction is a big focus of a, a cross-border carve-out. And the nature of the assets that are moving, um, the form of the seller entity, the availability in the form of an acquisition entity in each local jurisdiction, that can materially affect timing and cost. Um, and as we know, forming an entity in the U.S., it takes a day. 
but to form and then operationalize a new entity you know with things like bank accounts and tax and hr registrations and licenses and permits you know in more complex jurisdictions like a brazil or a china or a vietnam you know some countries in the middle east or africa that can take anywhere from 6 to 12 months and the process eats up a lot of internal and external resources um and things like cash repatriation and intercompany cleanup seems simple enough uh, but also requires a lot of attention up front in the transaction structuring phase because particularly in jurisdictions that require federal banking approvals and other formalities um, and you see that in um, Asia and LATAM quite a bit uh, a big focus in a cross border carve out is going to be the efficient transfer of employees and making sure that you have consistent communication to all employees because we need to avoid rumors um miscommunication uh and minimize adverse labor relations because we have statutory and contractual obligations with things like works councils and unions and collective bargaining agreements uh that require strict compliance and really affect timing um Germany and France both usual suspects for complicated works council consultations that can take 4 to 6 months and will delay closing until they're complete Um and then we also see collective bargaining regimes that are popular in Latin America have a similar impact on timing. One of the complexities added by uh doing a deal in multiple jurisdictions is deal timing. If you have a regulation, a regulatory impact and acquire or and seller may be in a position to close a transaction in a great number of the jurisdictions but be held up in uh transaction with respect to a limited number of jurisdictions that may or may not be really key or important if they're segregable or could operate standalone oftentimes we work with clients to kind of stage the closings of the acquisition such that the core business moves over but maybe um we have a mechanic such that one or two or any number of countries that the business operates in are held behind for for a time period either and there are some um more challenging jurisdictions and going to the preparation point is oftentimes you see sellers kind of establishing the businesses in the more difficult jurisdictions well in advance of the carve out so that uh, they could enable the timeline that they're trying to achieve there are certain countries as Darcy alluded to where you'll have to establish new entities some countries are very challenging um to establish new entities and in that context it may make sense for the 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 seller of the core business to establish that operation well in advance to picking a dance partner to do a deal with thanks steve um can i um move you on to you talk about the partners to do a deal with uh strategics as opposed to private equity i mean what's the what's the difference there and how do you prepare for the uh, the different types of buyers that you might encounter with a carve out so there there's quite a few strategic differences um and oftentimes for instance if uh, a seller is going to sell the business to be carved out through an auction they'll have some visibility as to the marketplace of likely buyers but not certainty so in the in the first instance many sellers are going down both routes and have to be prepared um to consummate a deal with either a strategic or uh private equity the um strategic there's a level of unpredictability as to what their infrastructure would be when they do a deal 
So sometimes it would be easier if there's overlap of a lot of countries in which the deal is taking place. But huge issue on if it's a competitor with uh, maintaining confidentiality in the transaction of the competitive secrets that the strategic competitor would want, and it could affect adversely the business or poaching people. And there's contractual ways to protect against both of those, but uh, once, this, once the secret's out, it's very hard to put it back in, in a bottle, so to speak. However, private equity usually has um, the ability to do a deal with less regulatory concerns because if it's a standalone acquisition and not through a portfolio company, presumably they're not a competitor. Theoretically, there could be a competition issue. The um, pr private equity, for the most part, will um, they'll usually be lesser of an antitrust concern. However, they um, usually will not have the infrastructure to do a, a global carve-out. Hence, a lot more work is involved. And um, when um, Darcy spoke before about how to keep people within the fold, the concern with private equity is you, you want to minimize how uh, the, the seller wants to minimize how many people have information as to the core interests of this deal. But along the way, private equity is going to need those people to kind of shift teams and inform them as to what is needed to operate the business because they won't have the core infrastructure in order to operate the business, nor the know-how that a competitor would have. They're learning a new business, and they're going to empower management to effectuate that business. So along the way, they have to build the trust with those managers. Steve, obviously, leaks are a problem in any deal. How, how do you go about stopping uh, information from leaking out of a, a carve-out deal? The, the most essential way is to minimize those in the know until announcement. It's absolutely, there are um, many ways to disguise the transaction so that um, a, con uh, a frequent mask that's put on um, the transaction is to inform your people that we're looking at a financing that um, is gonna be implemented. So a disguise is often used um, to avoid disclosure and not share the facts broadly as to what is coming down the pike. Um, obviously, all people that do know have to be um, informed as to the confidential nature of the transaction and um, agree to the, keep maintain the secrecy of, of the deal until it's announced. Um, and as, as the number of people widen, there's higher risk of a leak. But managing that is done frequently and done well to minimize and effectually prevent those leaks. Um, employees generally don't want to run afoul of their employers, and most people, I believe, are honest and would, would comply with their obligations. But it's a real risk, and, and you're only as strong as your weakest link in terms of um, risk of premature deal disclosure. Okay, Darcy, we've talked about leaks as one uh, possible pitfall in a carve-out deal. I mean, what, mm -hmm. what would you identify as other potential pitfalls in a carve-out, as well as maybe you could tell us how, what's best practice to make the deal go well? Yeah, I think you know, at a micro, uh, macro level, um, and, and we've touched on this a bit, that timelines and direction. So carve-outs are often publicly announced um, because external influences, you need to communicate with shareholders or we've got activists, we need to ease, ease some tension. 
So we'll have a strategic review of a portfolio, but we won't exactly know where it's going. Um, so the plans and the timeline need to have flexibility built in to allow that project to change direction at short notice. And we've seen this, you know, we, we see this all the time where a transaction starts um, as a spinoff, but then, you know, a third party comes in and we pivot to a carve out and sale. Um, similarly, I've had a deal where, you know, we're carving out, we were carving out and selling two businesses at one time to two different buyers and all the structuring and all the tax planning assumed that, you know, business A would be sold first. But then halfway through the implementation, turns out business A isn't going to be sold at all. And so all of our tax planning was flipped. It resulted in, you know, formation of 25 new entities. We had, um, you know, revised implementation steps in 30 jurisdictions. We had to renegotiate with the buyer. Essentially, it added, you know, three to four months to the timeline, um, an additional 10 delayed jurisdictions, <laughs> Steve mentioned those earlier, um, and pushed closing into a new quarter. Um, so again, always good to build in some flexibility in your public announcements because carve-outs, they can be long and they can be messy and, and they require flexibility. You know, there, there's a time when maybe target management it, the, the direction of the project becomes clear and then target management may turn on the retained business and it becomes an us versus them situation uh, with everybody looking at their own interests of their own business. Um, and so when things come up like how much debt should the target business have or you know, how are we going to allocate these shared employees or assets or what are the terms of that IP licensing arrangement going to be? Um, you know, that requires a lot of monitoring and you need to ensure the right level of oversight. You know, carve-outs are long and it can be easy to forget that there's a business to run. Um, so sometimes the target business, you know, they want to keep running, they want to keep growing and making money, they want to do it their way. Um, and all of these things can pose potential issues to the carve-out team. Um, so if, if they want to expand into new jurisdictions or product lines or acquire new assets or maybe scale back a portion of the business, um, this could result in you know, potential breaches of covenants in the definitive agreements or even in extreme cases change the value of the business being acquired. So again, need to be monitoring and ensure the right level of oversight. Thanks, Darcy. So just to finish off, uh, Steve, could you maybe talk us through what, what's the future of carve-outs? I mean, um, what, what trends may we see in the future coming to bear in this, in this space? That's a great question. Um, and to prognosticate a bit, uh, I think carve-outs are going to be here to stay, um, to say the least, in that we'll, um, we'll always see... Um, if there's a management shift or, or a shift in a core business or a technological improvement such that a legacy business is now operating in a different manner or through a different channel, that's, that's high-powered relative to the legacy business, and there's a need to divorce the two. Um, you'll frequently see the activist um, um, rattling the saber to get management to divest of assets or unleash um, shareholder value in some other way. So a reaction to that is often selling off a piece of the business. Um, or there'll be companies when you see a downturn in the economy. Um, hopefully we're not seeing that now, but we may be. Um, but that often leads for a need to find cash to or other liquidity to pay off debt. And a spinoff may very well be the cure for or the way to pay off that debt or a portion of it. Um, so I think the prognosis is there will be continued 
companies that look at spinning out assets, um, the volume of cash held by um, private equity is enormous. So there's likely to be interested buyers that are willing to work hard to take those assets off of the hands of those that are selling and to create a competitive environment such that um, real value is realized by the seller. So I don't see any reason why they won't continue or be a very vibrant part of the M&A landscape on a go-forward basis. Okay, Steve, Darcy, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Talking M&A podcast in partnership with Baker McKenzie. We'll see you next time. Thank you.